You know, it's great to hear uh, stories of people and how God is working or in how they're encountering God in their life. And that's the whole idea behind these stories, to show how God is working all through our body, all through our town, our region, our, our area, whether it's Aurora, Newmarket, Markham, Stouffville, Oxbridge, wherever it is, Richmond Hill, that God is at work here in us and through us, but also all around the world. And that's why we pray, because God says when you pray, there's a part of God's work that relies on us praying. I don't understand it. I don't know why God made it that way. But there are times when God says he will not move, he will not act unless first we pray. And James picked that up when he said, you have not because you ask not. And so God hasn't given you what you needed or what you wanted or, or what needs to happen because you haven't asked. And so God unites himself with us through prayer. And that's why I want to encourage you tonight, let's not be weary in well-doing because if we keep up with well-doing, the Bible says we will experience a harvest, so let us not be weary and well-doing. Let's meet for prayer. And if you're anything like me, you know, when it comes about, the, you know, late Sunday afternoon and prayer night, you go, oh, I don't want to go tonight. And then you, if you show up, you, uh, it's amazing how many times, almost always, I leave that prayer meeting and go, I'm so glad I came. And so I want to encourage you not to be weary and well-doing for your family, for this country, for our region, for your own life for this church. Let's not be weary and well-doing. And by the way, prayer is the number one resource, lack of a better word, that helps us deal with what we're going to talk about today. So we're in this series, the big picture series, and now we're going to get to suffering. I want to start by telling you about Paul Catapalli and he writes about Lisa and um, Michael Gunger. And he said, according to his wife, Lisa Gunger, musician Michael Gunger has become an atheist. What happened to this man who enthralled millions with his Christian music albums? How could the son of a pastor become an atheist after so many years in active ministry? And then Catapulli follows uh, an interview and the stories and the writings of the Gungers. And he realizes that two things happened. First, they, did, they, they moved away from a belief in the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible, in their mind, couldn't be God's word. And then followed on the heels of that was a struggle with the reality of suffering. And it kind of came to a, a peak moment when they were visiting Auschwitz in uh, uh, the Auschwitz uh, prison camp. And they were overwhelmed with how God could ever let such horrible torture and suffering happen to people. And at that same time, Lisa received a, a, an email from her family saying her cousin, who was basically young, like her same age, and had gotten cancer. And though they as a Christian family had gathered and asked for God to heal this cousin, the, the cousin wasn't healed. And all this came crashing down. Lisa said, I lost my mind. Like, what does that mean? I went on finely worded rant all in my head and with Michael. I was like, this is garbage. This whole idea is garbage. 
I don't believe any of this. I'm an atheist. Now, it's not unusual for people who are struggling with suffering to question whether there's a God or not. I mean, it's, it's simple logic, right? Like, if God truly loves us, he wants what is best for us. And if he truly has all power, then he would remove the suffering out of our lives because he loves us. And because there is suffering, clearly there, there isn't a God. And suffering becomes one of the biggest barriers to people entertaining a belief in God and for people who have entertained and have had a faith in God starting to deconvert. But instead of uh, approaching this from an emotional point of view, because when it comes to suffering, our emotions are inundated but by the chaos and the confusion and the hurt, and it becomes impossible to emote your way to God and to reason through suffering. And rather than allow our emotions to dictate to us what God is like and what life is like, we need to allow our mind to think first about suffering and allow our thinking to control our emotions rather than vice versa. And when it comes to suffering, if you let your emotions lead you, who knows where you'll go. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about suffering and people who talk about it and reject God is very rarely do people who are turning away from God due to suffering ever consider suffering from God's point of view. And that's what I like about this series on the big picture because it's giving us a sense of how God has, has been at work in this world over thousands of years and what role different events and things like suffering play in the plan of God. And the first thing we learned was that God did not create a world in which there was suffering. In fact, he created a perfect world, a world that did not have suffering. And he placed man and woman in that perfect environment. And then in that environment, they were free to live and free to exist. And there was no suffering. And so the question, well, how did suffering come in? And so suffering came in when man and woman, when Adam and Eve decided to allow Satan, the serpent, to have influence in the garden, in their thinking. And they believed Satan's word over God. God's word, and they chose to reject the one who was the creator and the good one who created everything. They chose to reject God. And as a consequence of that rejection, allowed and brought suffering into our world. Suffering isn't here because God willed it to be here. It's here because man willed it to be here. Blaming God for suffering is kind of like an individual breaking into an aquarium when it's closed down to swim with the sharks and then suing the aquarium because the sharks bit them. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but God could stop it. And just hold on to that thought. How far do you want to go down that rabbit hole? What would it take for God to stop suffering in this world? Well, there's two ways. There's the way he's doing it, which we're going to talk about in a second, or it's the way we want him to do it, which is he just stops it. He doesn't let it happen. He overrides it. Uh-huh. And do you want God overriding you for everything you want to do? 
Every thought that you have, every action that you want to take, everything that you want to do, if God doesn't agree, he's going to stop you and override you? Is that what you're asking? I can tell you right now that the majority of this world would never want that. And the truth of the matter is, is God doesn't want that either because it eliminates, in order for that to happen, for God to stop suffering our way, he has to eliminate our free will. The ability for us to choose to do things that will cause suffering in ourselves or others. But if he eliminates free will, which was a gift given to mankind so that we were made in the image of God, he needs to eliminate love because love comes only through our ability to choose. You can't program somebody to love because it's not true love. It's not coming from the heart. They're just programmed to do that. You can have your computer, I'm sure, tell you every day, a hundred times a day, it loves you. It means nothing. You know it's just programmed to do that. But love must come from a choice, and to have choice, you must have free will. And to have free will, you can misuse it. And so the thing we forget when we talk about suffering when it comes to God is that we're the originators of it, not God. It's here because of decisions our parents have made and decisions as we as individuals have made. But there's another thing that, another view or aspect of suffering from God's point of view that we forget about and people forget about is we assume in the discussion that God isn't doing anything about suffering. May God really love me, he wouldn't let me go through this. If God really was all-powerful, he would stop what is happening. And the assumption underneath those statements is that God is doing nothing about suffering. But as we open up this big picture, as God created this perfect world and man sinned against him and went into rebellion, we hear over and over that God has chosen to redeem mankind and began on a journey, a story that will result, as we looked at the book of Revelation, in perfection returned in a new creation where suffering and tears and sorrow and pain are gone. But there is a story of how they got from the garden to how we get to end times, and we are living out that story, and we've been talking about that story here. And here's what we find out. Now we're going to enter one of the most sacred chapters of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, and here is where suffering has been alluded to, but here God takes back the curtains and shows mankind how he is going to redeem mankind, and he is going to do it through suffering. Apparently, suffering isn't the problem, it's the solution. Let's just grasp, grasp that just for a second. God says suffering isn't the problem, it's the solution. Isaiah chapter 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who understands? Who has seen and heard and, and understands what God is doing. He, who's he? Presumably the one that God has been talking about, the one he promised Adam and Eve that would stomp the serpent's head 
and though he would be struck, would destroy the serpent. The one he promised to Abraham who would bless all the nations of the earth. The one he promised to Moses who would be the lamb that would sacrifice for the sins of the people. The one he promised to David who would build a house for God, a people for God, and reign it forever. The one he promised to Ezekiel who would be the shepherd that would come in and turn the people back to God and shepherd them along the way. The one he said to Jeremiah will bring the spirit of God and fill his people and create a new covenant. And here, this one now we understand also is the one who, is be, who grew up like a, uh, before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. You think tender shoots and a root in dry ground are very vulnerable, easily destroyed, not powerful. He didn't have beauty or majesty attract us to him. He didn't come in the, the revelation of his power, this one that they were expecting. He won't come like that. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was, in fact, this one, he, the one that God has promised, is despised and he's rejected by mankind. He's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. Not what you expect of the one God is going to use. That's not how we work. That's not how our nature works. We want to avoid suffering, not embrace it. And yet this one will be embracing it. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. He was oppressed, verse 7. He was afflicted, yet his mouth didn't open. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the sheep before his shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. He's going to experience oppression and judgment. He was taken away. The idea is forcefully removed. And yet, who of his generation protect? Who stood up for him? He was cut off from the land of the living. This one would face suffering, and suffering will be the means whereby God will work out his plan. And this one who's coming will submit to the suffering. Now, I just want to stop here for a second because. Jesus' action to submit, because Isaiah 53 is a prophecy, 600 years before Jesus came. It's a prophecy of Jesus, fulfilled by him. But Peter picks up this idea of Jesus' suffering and how he submitted to it. And in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Jesus suffered and submitted to it and left us a model or an example that we should follow. That the, the understanding of God for us when it comes to suffering is that we need to submit it to God, embrace the suffering, and trust God in that suffering. Not resist it, not attack God, not oppose it. but that we submit ourselves to God in our suffering for him to tell us how we should handle it. And that we seek him in the middle of our pain. Uh, Bob Benson wrote a, a, a book that he, um, he called uh, See, you, See You at the House. 
and he recounts the story of a friend who had had a heart attack. And at first, it didn't seem like the man would live, but eventually the man recovered. And then a couple months later, Bob was with his friend, and he asked him, well, how did you like your heart attack? Now, that's a strange question. <laughs> how did you like your heart attack? And the answer was, well, it scared me to death. Bob said, would you do it again? Absolutely not. Would you recommend it? Definitely not. Does your life mean more to you now than it did before? Well, yeah. You and Nell have always had a beautiful marriage, but are you closer now than ever before? Uh-huh. How about that new granddaughter? Yeah. Well, did I show you her picture? Trying to change the topic. <laughs> Do you have a new compassion for people, a deeper understanding and a sympathy? Yes. Do you know the Lord in a deeper, richer fellowship than you had ever realized could be possible? Yes. So let me ask you again. How did you like your heart attack? In Isaiah chapter 38, uh, the author says, gives us... Uh, um, a mindset when it comes to pain and to suffering that we don't much often hear. He says, surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Early he said, I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. That God creates in us through our suffering the things that are most important to us. It's because suffering isn't the problem. It's the solution if we trust God. Sometimes in order to get what we most want, God has to bring us into the middle of what we least want. Now remember, I'm talking to you from your mind now. I want you to think about this. I know what I'm saying is loaded with emotional weight and that it seems maybe even uncaring or, or not really taking into consideration the suffering that you're going through. And I can't answer that unless I have walked through what you've walked through. I know emotionally you can be overloaded, but you, we've got to allow our thinking to guide our lives and our decisions, not our emotions, especially in the middle of pain and suffering. And sometimes God has to take us into places in our lives and into situations and events we don't want in order to create what we desperately want. That it's through suffering healing comes. Jesus saw that. Through suffering healing comes. That's why he suffered on a cross. It's, it's through suffering that hope and faith and compassion and grace and mercy deepen in our lives. It's through suffering we change from the inside out and are formed more deeply into the character of Christ. It's through suffering. Suffering is not the problem. It's a solution. 
Look what Jesus did in uh, Isaiah chapter 53. We go back there. Look, why did he have to suffer? What did God accomplish through suffering? Look what we said. But he was pierced for our transgressions. His suffering was so that we could be free. He was crushed for our iniquities. His suffering was for our benefit. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. His suffering brought peace to us. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his suffering, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Lord crushed him. Therefore I'll give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressor. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's through suffering that we are healed. And as Jesus suffered to form in us faith and give us salvation, so through our suffering, we expand that in our lives and grow into our salvation. Well, why did Jesus' suffering heal us, save us, free us? Well, first, we had to pay back a life that we stole from God. So this is going to go cross-cultural and cross-intuit. It's going to cross over your intuition on this because this teaching isn't often taught. And we, we counter it, uh, this scriptural teaching, we counter it naturally because uh, how many times a day do we refer to my life? This is my life. You do you. You be who you are. It's your life. But Scripture never teaches that. In fact, common sense doesn't teach us that. Okay, when, why did you decide to be born today in the family? Oh, hold it. I didn't decide anything. I just kind of showed up on the scene. I had no say in it. Yeah. And why are you going to die when you decide you're going to? Well, hold on. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know how long my life is going to be. Uh-huh. And why do you have to give account to your, of your life to God. By the way, no, an owner never gives account. They own it. Those who have been given a trust have to give account. And so why are we required to give account of our lives? We didn't determine when we were born. We don't determine when we die. We don't even determine what we look like. We don't determine our, our passions and our giftedness. We can develop them, but they're already in, latent within us. And we give account for our lives. And why is that? Because the life belongs to God. And when we sin, we stole it from God. We destroyed a life that he entrusted to us by our sin. And Jesus steps in our place and he gives his life for our life. His life for our life. Life for life. He replaces what we took by giving his life. But not only did he repay the life that we took by our sin, but he fulfilled all justice. Can you imagine a story you're reading uh, online, you go on, you read a story of a judge who, who is dealing with a, a convicted uh, drunken driver who hit a woman and killed her and her children. And the judge goes, meh, we'll just let you off. 
Now, if you saw that happen, if you read that, you would, something inside you would say, but that is wrong. That, he can't do that. And yet we carry with us this, I, this belief that when we stand before God and, and God looks at all of our sin, he's going to go, yeah, don't worry about it. God can no more release us from our sin than a judge can release a drunken driver from the death that he caused. And so Jesus took our place on the cross, paid for our sin by being there and suffering what we should suffer. And then freed God to act in mercy because he fulfilled all justice and repaid all that was owed. God now can treat us with mercy and compassion and grace and still remain just and righteous. And he can pour out on us his favor and still remain just and righteous because Jesus satisfied all the demands of righteousness and justice at the cross. And for those who are willing to say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe that his death paid for my sin. I surrender my life to God. That's what it means to put your faith in God. Then, then Jesus says, now I'm going to come into you by my spirit, and I'm going to begin to change you from the inside out. And how does the greatest changes happen in our life when we follow Jesus? The same way that the greatest change in our life happened through salvation Jesus suffered for us so that we could be healed, we could be forgiven, we could be restored to God, and now that suffering will produce in us the growing of this new life that is within us. So suffering's not the problem. It's the solution. Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 5. My son, my daughter, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. I'll just, oh, whatever. And don't lose heart when he rebukes you, when you're in difficult times. Don't ignore it. And don't be overcome and discouraged by it. Because, why, 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 why? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So read that. The Lord brings pain and suffering into the lives of those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a child he's a good father no discipline seems pleasant at the time well there's an understatement in scripture no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful but later on however it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it See, suffering isn't the problem, it's the solution. It's how God most deeply changes us from the inside out. It's how he draws you closer to him. It's how he makes you and me better people, more like Christ. How he roots out those desires and that pride and conceitedness and hatred of self how he roots those broken, uh, dirty, decayed roots within our soul and how he pulls them out and replaces them with compassion and peace and joy and love. That's how God works. But if you count on your emotions to get you there, you'll never get there. 
We must know it first, trust God with it, and then endure. And seek him in days when that's the last thing we feel like doing. So, Isaiah 53. I think we need to do a couple things. One is we need to get rid of the idea that suffering is a proof that God doesn't exist. In fact, if you think of it from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, suffering is actually a proof that we're broken and sinful. Suffering is a proof that we're separated desperately from God and that we need the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to restore us back to God because nothing else we can do will be able to reconcile us with God. Nothing we can do can replace the life that we have damaged by sin because we can't restore it to a perfect life and nothing we can do can replace the justice of God except to pay the penalty for our sin. But Jesus stands in our place, giving back a life to replace ours, paying and receiving the, the penalty for our sins so that if any of us choose, we can say, God, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin, and now I choose you. And that's a choice each one of us must make. But we need to stop thinking. Suffering tells us there is no God. Suffering tells us we're broken and sinful and need God. The second thing I would say about suffering is uh, Jesus' example, according to Peter, is that we need to embrace, not repel, suffering. Now, I don't know all that that means because it's a very individual thing when we get into suffering because for some people, God says, wait, and for others, he says, no, do this, do that, be, be relieved from it. But only when we embrace and seek him. But we should not be shocked and surprised that suffering is a part of our life as a follower of Jesus because he suffered. And he was an example for us. That we should do what he did. Embrace our suffering and trust it with God. I mean, we don't have a problem with that in other areas of life. If we want to be physically fit, we embrace suffering and pain to get there. If we want to be financially fit, we embrace suffering because we have to say no to ourselves when everything within us wants to buy, wants to have, and we say no. If we want to have children and bring them into this world and raise them, we have to embrace Suffering and pain, it's part of how the greatest things in our life come to being. And so how much more becoming like Christ from the inside out should we expect that suffering will just be a regular part of it? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that you should breeze through it. It probably won't have effect on you if it isn't hard. I'm just saying pain is not the problem. It's the solution when we embrace God in our pain. And Ashley said maybe today, earlier, you had some things that, you know, you're, are causing a blockage between you and God. And I'm going to guess that for some here and some online, the blockage is the pain and the hurt that you have, and you're struggling because God isn't taking it away. And Jesus says, Jesus' example is embrace 
and trust him with it and lay it before him and seek him in it, hoping and trusting in him to lead you through it when the time is right. But you got to go there. That's your choice. The third thing I'd say just about this is when it comes to my four. Now, Ben mentioned my four. Uh, my four is our way of, of joining God in the mission that he's given us, right? He gave us a mission just as Jesus left. He said, now go make disciples. And that means those that are not followers of Jesus, invite them into becoming a follower. Help them see Jesus so they can make a decision. And once they make people make that decision, then help them grow in that. That's the, the two wings of the, the mission that God has given us. And, and the way we express reaching people that don't know God is is my my four, that all of us are called to that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to mission. It's not just me. It's not just the staff. It's not just the elders and leaders in the church. It's all of us that Jesus said, if you're a follower, then you're on mission. And the way we're expressing it is to say, God, give me four people in my network of relationships who are not followers of Christ, that you want to use me in some way to reach, to, to help them understand a little better, or maybe even take a step closer to you, and, or maybe even trust you, but give me people that I can intercede for, I can be praying for regularly for you to work in your lives. Remember, God uses us, and, and along with his work, he invites us, and our prayers are part of seeing people's eyes open and understanding. We intercede for them, and then we invest in their lives through loving them in acts of love. Every month, we send out an email that says, here are some suggestions and some ideas on how to love people around you, and they're not really complicated. They're usually things like, hey, send a text and check up on them, see how they're doing. Bring a coffee or send a coffee. Give them a call. Go for a walk. Take interest. Ask questions. Simple stuff that's about loving. That's how you invest in other people. You pour into life. And then invite. So it's intercede, and then it's invest, and then invite. As you're praying and getting to know people, you ask God, show me what I invite them to. Show me what it is. Should I invite them to watch online? Should I invite them to Alpha? Should I invite them to read a book? Should I invite them, invite them to read the Bible? Should I invite them into a conversation about spiritual things? What is it, God? Show me. And now I want to talk to those, some of you have people in your mind for who are suffering. Now, telling them this sermon, like kind of taking the points, probably in the way to handle it. Oh, I just learned in church today, you don't need to worry about suffering. It's the solution, not the problem. Get over it. Yeah, I don't recommend that. You know what I recommend? There is nobody who understands suffering like Jesus so introduce them to Jesus and let Jesus do the work. There's no one who understands suffering like Jesus. And perhaps one of you are my four who's going through a really dreadful time. Jesus can bring comfort and healing and hope that no human being can. But they got to know. See, suffering isn't the problem, it's a solution. What would a life be without suffering? Because I think most of us would like that. I don't know if you remember that show, The Twilight Zone. It was in the 70s, so some of you weren't even alive then, uh, so it'd be hard to remember. Um, I, 
I, I vaguely remember watching it because I was just a kid. And uh, it was a show that kind of took stories about life and then gave them a funny twist, an odd twist. And it was the Twilight Zone. And one of the episodes was a gambler who died while gambling. And then when he woke up in the afterlife, he was in a beautiful casino. The nicest casino he could ever have dreamed of. And as he went from table to table, wheel to wheel, dice to dice, he always had a winning hand. He always rolled the perfect roll. He always placed his bet on the right number. He always won. And he was loving it. It was unfantastic. It was heaven. It was what he had always dreamed about for a while. And then a boredom and a meaninglessness began to settle on him. Because without losing, winning means nothing. Without the threat of loss, there is no risk and excitement in the bet. If you always get everything you dreamed of, it will become hell to you, not heaven. Because it's in the losses and in the suffering that God grows the deepest, most meaningful realities of our lives. Would you bow your head? Jesus, you know suffering. You understand it. You experienced it. And your plan for this world and suffering is that you would enter into suffering. For those that are hurting, I pray for your comfort. For those that are far from you, I pray that they would put their trust in you. For those that are wondering if they can be right with you, I pray they would bow their knee in faith to you. And for us, as we seek to follow you, help us to trust you that suffering is not the problem. It's actually your solution to a changed life.